the founder journey is a special one because giving birth to a child means you have to figure out when they're ready to take on the world like your child that they're going to do it without you and how do you depersonalize it but yet believe that the foundations that you put in and the vision that you had for this child will carry on and live on everyone, welcome back. I'm your host, Anu Dougal, and this is The 2%, a podcast highlighting women who are breaking barriers and building the businesses of the future. In today's episode, I chat with Sheila Marcello, founder and former CEO of Care.com, the world's largest online marketplace for finding child, pet, and senior care. Sheila is also currently venture partner at NEA and executive chairwoman for The Wing. In this episode, Sheila shares how her experiences growing up in a matriarchal society in the Philippines and as a young mother in the business world sparked her passion and lifelong commitment to ensuring women have the resources they need to level the playing field and succeed. We discuss what it will take to break down the biggest barriers to equality in the workplace, the three main factors that differentiate the best businesses, the most important questions founders should ask themselves before going public, and much more. Let's dive in. Okay, wonderful, Sheila. So great to have you on the 2% here with us today. Um, Let's start with where are we finding you and how's your day going? I'm Haya New. so excited to be here. I'm actually in New York City sitting in a hotel room uh, and my day is going great. It's nice, bright and sunny and warm outside. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, So maybe we can start off with um, a little bit about your background. So I know you grew up in the Philippines, where I believe your family was in the coconut business. Um, Would love to just hear a little bit more about um, kind of your experience, um, you know, growing up in the Philippines and in particular, how you feel that your upbringing really had an influence on, on where you are today. You know, I know I was just talking about this with girlfriends actually recently, um, having been born and raised in the Philippines, which is tends to be a matriarchal society. I, I definitely felt I had a lot of opportunities as a little girl and growing up uh, to be a young woman because I, I went there all the way through high school before I came here for college and didn't really experience a lot of the issues around feminism that I ended up studying at an all-women's college at Mount Holyoke. And the reason for that is my mom and dad got married at a young age and my mom was very entrepreneurial and pretty vocal in their relationship, was a visionary, uh, came up with different ideas, they worked in partnerships. And my dad was not the stereotypical uh, man in that he was super nurturing loved to cook, never, you know, uh, minded, like if I, if I asked him to iron my shirt, he's actually much better at ironing my shirt than I am. <laughs> like, you know, uh, taught me math at a very early age next to my brothers who were older, didn't judge um, my being a woman or a girl and advancing and, uh, and having a big vision uh, for me, similar to my brothers and my sister. So I, I was very fortunate. Um, and, and then watching parents, as you touched on, they, they own a lot of businesses, the coconut to processing sugar and rice and bananas and ducks and just a lot of typical uh, country, uh, provincial businesses that my parents owned. What I did is I watched them manage people, grow the business, strategize. And at a very young age, I was helping them answering the phone and involved in the business. And I think I had 
their, their entrepreneurship really rubbed off on me and their partnership and their equal treatment for each other rubbed off on me. Um, so anyways, long answer, but um, really just a loving, you know, thoughtful, nurturing uh, family that really gave equal opportunities to both boys and girls in my family. I'd love to go into what you mentioned earlier about the Philippines being historically a strong matriarchal society. You have said in the past that you didn't feel like you experienced gender discrimination really until you came to the to the U.S. for college. What were some of the biggest differences in gender roles between these two countries and any thoughts on kind of what that was about? Yeah, I knew. You know, what's really interesting about the Philippines, you know, the World uh, Economic Forum puts out a gender gap report, as you know, every year. And the Philippines is one of the top 10 countries with the narrowest gender gap, which is is atypical for an uh, Asian country, um, mm-hmm. given the, uh, the expectation around, um, you know, Asian women are much more submissive and the, the culture of, of, of uh, again, um, male-dominated society. The Philippines tends to be much more matriarchal. And this was even pre-colonial times. I think the, the fact that historically women were allowed to own land pre-colonial mm. times, uh, women uh, were allowed to be priestesses um, wow. in, in their tribes. Um, you know, and I, and I looked this up years later after studying sort of taking feminist classes at Mount Holyoke to say, yeah, why, why was that? And it could have been, I don't know if it's a geography of over 7,000 islands that created a sense of, of um, more freedom of ownership. I mean, maybe it was sort of that same thing, but in the United States of what we call that cowboy culture where we explored lands and yeah. that we, you know, and I don't know, I don't know if that had something to do with a sense of uh, democracy and freedom and ownership and openness. And mm-hmm. it could have been, could have been the Malay culture um, yeah. But anyways, I mean, I, I, you know, I'd love to at some point explore it with a historian and I could completely be off base, but I remember reading this and, and thought, you know, would something like that so historical and, and, and ingrained in the system, it impacts the culture of mm-hmm. a country. There's a sense of openness. And it's certainly something, as you know, you and I are in life journey to try and change systems um, to actually advance for women. But I think that had a lot to do with it. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. And uh, I hope I would love to read more, you know, at some point when you um, when you dive into it, it's it's really fascinating. And I think to your point, you know, even in India, you know, you've had a history of female politicians, same in yeah. the Philippines, you know, yeah. much more here in the United States, which is which is so ironic. Yeah. Yeah. Could uh, be. I mean, yeah, could be. So you touched on this earlier, you know, you've really dedicated your career to ensuring um, that women have equal resources and everything they need to really level the playing field. When did you first discover your passion for this mission? I think it was really in my own uh, journey of being a young mother. I got pregnant between uh, my sophomore and junior year. And I was going to a women's college, and I, I remembered when I rematriculated my my junior year's um, fall semester. First of all, my Olive didn't know what to do with me, uh, and there was a little bit of a judgment uh, around my classmates of why I was I was journeying to become a young mother in college, mm-hmm. um, and 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 so sort of the gender 
sort of journey started to, to, because it was so proximate around the issues. And then when I first applied to my first job, um, I interviewed um, with, this, with a gentleman who's a really good friend of mine now, Bob, and the interview went really well. And then he'd asked me towards the end of the interview, what were my hobbies? It was my very first interview with this firm. What were my hobbies? And I told him, you know, I, I don't really have time to have a lot of hobbies because I'm a mom, a young mom, and I'm like juggling. And I, I was only in my 20s. I was straight out of college interviewing for this job. And he then politely told me, he's like, you know what? Don't mention in your follow-up interviews that you're a mother. Because I really want to work with you, and we—he now is a really good friend to this day. And I just realized it wasn't a fit for my culture, but you know, really meeting my expectations of allowing me to be who I was in the work environment in that yeah. first job, but made me super conscious that somehow my gender had something to do with it. And and of course, it was not only my gender, but being a mother at a young age, right? That somehow the projects were going to be given to men. You know, uh, because it may be yeah. deemed that I was distracted or, you know, but yet if a young, fa- if a young man was a father, he'd be deemed responsible, right. you know? Right. So I, I just started to, to really better observe what was going on. Cause it was so proximate to my own journey, uh, as a young sure. mom trying to really make it in the world in my career. Yeah, no, that, that completely makes sense. And I guess along those lines, you know, as you think about, you know, the biggest barriers um, to equality that women and particularly women of color face in the workplace, um, obviously, as you, as you said, very clearly, you know, there, there remains, unfortunately, a level of bias, you know, against moms. What is your point of view just around what it will take to really break these down? As I mentioned, I do think it's a lot of it is is systems, and it's so much of it starts with the more leaders that we have um, that are women that we can look up to. Um, you know, that starts to change. Role modeling really matters, but also I I think I've seen the data that suggests that if you increase the number of women in a boardroom, that actually starts to impact service-driven levels and improvement in outcomes, and that diversity really can can drive real growth uh, for a company and change. And so the data is there. So, so much of it is is really changing leadership that will improve the pipeline, improve outcomes, and so much of that is systems. Um, Mm -hmm. And of course, how do you get more women in the boardroom? How do you get more uh, women in the C-suite? So much of it is also increasing the number of women to allow the networking so that we can sponsor other women up, right? So uh, it's just, it's sort of a a cycle that we've really got to go through and continue to invest and be vigilant the way you and I are around supporting women. Sure. I think that completely makes sense. In terms of your own experience as a mother in the business world, you know, I know you started out um, and really have built upon an incredibly successful career, but I can imagine in the early days it was it was challenging. What were some of the most important lessons that you learned during this period? Yeah, I remember sharing this with a good friend of mine, Tina Brown. You know, she'd asked me a similar question, and I and I realized that there is this myth that again, we want to have it all. That's a phrase that's been used, <laughs> and I do agree with Anne Marie Slaughter that you can't really have it all. Um, that uh, we make choices at certain phases in our lives around sacrifices. Um, you know, the story that I like to share is that. I remember um, in high school, Ryan had just graduated and my older son is now 29 and we were by the refrigerator. It was soon after graduation and, and uh, I just asked him a question. I was thinking, I was thinking milk out of the fridge or something. And, 
and he, um, I said, so do you, do you think that, um, you know, how did you feel, uh, you know, throughout high school? Do you think that I wasn't around enough? And it was my own insecurity and guilt asking about this. And he actually said, and his response was very honest. And he said, yeah, mom, you weren't like the other moms. I kind of wish you were around. And I tried to hold back my tears, but it was mm-hmm. hurtful. And then years later, uh, we were taking the company public. Uh, we had just taken it public. It was actually our celebratory dinner. And, and my family was there, the bankers, the accountants, and everybody was around on the different tables. And we had an open mic to share with the team to kind of give our thanks. And I, lo and behold, Brian, who was uh, only in his early 20s, he, he was still yeah. in college, grabbed the microphone and um, and then just say, Mom, surprise. I know you're probably wondering what I'm going to say, but I just want you to remind me of that story by the refrigerator. And he said, I want, I want to just share with you and everyone here that... Um, I answered you in the wrong way. If, if I if I think back, I mean, now that I've seen your journey at care.com and what you have done to help so many women and families and in their lives, the right answer should not have been the selfish answer. It was to tell you that I saw and I finally am seeing what you're doing for the world. And I'm so proud of you. Oh my God. I was just like, oh, <laughs> you know, you know, yeah. so it's those, those moments that I think, um, during the journey, I certainly felt insecure and like, am I making the right choices? Am I making the right trade-offs? But net, net, you know, um, my boys turned out great. I have a very close relationship with them. Um, and certain choices that I make and I'm, and I'm open and I'm vulnerable that this journey is not easy um, mm-hmm. to do the juggle, um, but it is very doable. That's an incredible story and such a testament to everything that you've built and the number of people you've inspired. So that's incredible. Along those lines, um, your inspiration in in founding Care.com, I think, was very much also based on personal experience. Um, You know, now the world's largest online marketplace, from a timeline perspective, before some of, you know, the the Ubers and the Airbnbs came around to discovering marketplaces as a model. Would love for you to just share your original vision and and the story that that motivated you to, to really build this. Yeah, I mean, Anu, as you know, I, as I shared, I, I got pregnant between my sophomore and junior year, and my parents were in the Philippines. My husband's parents were deceased, and so we didn't really have a lot of access to care. We were on our own. And then years later, um, we had just finished grad school. I had gotten pregnant with another baby, Adam. And I begged my parents to come from the Philippines because I was working at a startup uh, that was helping families save money for college. It was called You Promise. And my, my dad came and, um, and the, my mom and dad were both helping and my dad was carrying Adam up the stairs. And then I was at work and in the middle of the afternoon, he fell backwards and had a heart attack. And, and so, and my dad's okay today, but I, re- I recall how stressful it was to juggle childcare and senior care. And that's what we deem that you're sandwiched, right? Between, mm-hmm. between the two. And so mine was really a new, a, a real personal journey of awakening around, wow, this is really difficult, this care thing. And then yet professionally, as I mentioned, I was working at a company that was very mission driven called You Promise, and it was serving uh, families and actually ended up being a marketplace, a loyalty marketplace, mm-hmm. uh, where people could find um, ways in which to uh, spend, but yet save money for college. And so I learned to help market to families on a mission-driven company. 
And then after that, I joined a company called The Ladders um, that was really a job matching people to people services marketplace. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you could hear sort of the theme of care.com yeah. and, it was, and it was subscription based. Um, and, uh, and so from there, having gone through my personal journey and I knew there's need for care and I learned the subscription business model from people to people service, plus learning how to build a product for parents that was very mission driven. That's really where I, you know, the, the, you know, impetus for care.com came from was my own both personal and professional journey. Um, and, and again, I use this word proximity and Brian Stevenson often, um, talks about it when, when you when you have something that is a lived experience in your life that's what drives your passion and your dedication mm-hmm. to something and that's really where where the passion came from was my own journey I guess you know from a success perspective you know you you are one of I believe it's only 22 women um, to found and lead a company to to an IPO incredible um, and you know, we obviously have a long way to go, but it's really role models like yourself that I think are inspiring many other women, including, um, you know, the founders in our, in our portfolio mm-hmm. would yeah. love to, we would love to hear about, you know, the lessons you learned throughout this process of taking, you know, really an idea, um, in the early phases and successfully bringing it to, you know, an IPO. Sure. I, I mean, the, so much of it is, is uh, you know, as I look now and I look at seed stage companies as a venture partner in NEA, I look at sort of three things, right? Like total addressable market definitely is a must have. It needs to be there. The second is the concept to ensure that there truly is a differentiation and a moat and that it, there's some secret sauce of, of what you're trying to build and whatever it could be. It could be technology. It could be uh, the concept. It could be the, just the business model that's unique and different. Um, and the third is really about team. Um, and so whether you're a female founder or a male founder, right, irrespective or whatever race you may be, these are three very important things in building a company. And now if I were to overlay, hey, well, what are the, what are the often the challenges for female founders? And back to your question around while they're 22 of taking a company public and and all the way through. Um, I definitely think, look, an IPO, an exit, they're, they're successes and they're, and they're a milestone and a marker, but it's not necessarily every definition of success. Right. And, and so mine is just going to caveat to say, okay, so if this is the path, which is what 22 women, I mean, I'd love to hear their answers too, is just making (laughs) sure, obviously it's got to be a big enough idea. I'm back to Tam again, right? It's got to be something you're trying to solve at scale. Um, And that is critical and important because um, sometimes I hear business plans that is really solving an amazing, I mean, it's, it's, it's solving a really big problem, a real problem with an amazing solution, but it's not massive, right? Mm-hmm. So to take something public and it's such a long journey, you really have to define something that you're trying to go for scale. And then and then the concept needs to be different enough. I was just meeting with a girlfriend recently who's pitching me a really strong concept that was like an incredible cash cow. And, and I just kept pushing her and I say, what makes it different? What makes it so unique that someone's not gonna come in and copy you? And I, I think that the, the, it's a taller order for, for female founders, in fact. Um, and, and the reason for that is the, the question and the biases are, is there longevity? Is she going to be tough enough? Is she strategic enough? Is she going to... So, so much of the concept and the idea has to be powerful. 
um, mm-hmm. for you to convince. And it's a tall and it's a tall bar. You know this as as you invest, right? You really push to make sure that the female founders are sound because I've seen you prep from C to A to B to just make sure it can scale. Um, right. And then the third is the third is team. Um, that you don't have to do this solo, that you do really, really need to surround yourself. And this is critical. You need to find a team that is going to respect you as a female founder as you grow. And they're comfortable reporting to a female founder and a CEO. Yeah. That's not always yeah. the case, yeah. right? And, and I've Absolutely. seen many moments where a female founder is replaced by a man. Right. And 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 so much of that often obviously it's performance but it's also at the core of it is at the team the team is 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 there to surround you to help perform yeah so i think that that is critical and sometimes i've seen where the moments are that there's a lot of success but the team may not be behind the founder or it's unstable or yeah. there are challenges there so that's really tough to scale so anyway so that's a long-winded answer but it's the basic same three things of, of what drives uh, why you would want to invest in a company. Well, I think all of those are right on in terms of, you know, what, what really truly separates, you know, to your point, the massive, you know, kind of scalable unicorns or really large success stories. One of the points you touched upon earlier is just around, you know, obviously having a team to support you as a female founder. But is there any other piece of advice for those founders who are specifically looking to to take their companies public? Yeah, really ask yourself, what is the motivation to be public? <laughs> yeah, I, I get I, I get this. I, it's funny because I remember my investors and advisors pushed me on this and I just had a singular goal. I we had a, a large offer on the table um, to buy the company uh, versus take it public. And I passed on the offer. And I remember a board member say to me, dude, do you really, he calls me, dude, do you really, really want to do that? <laughs> do you really, really <laughs> want to do that? And uh, and I and I remember saying here, for a variety of reasons, I want the public, care.com should be owned by uh, the public since it serves families. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I want to be a role model that women can do this. I want um, you know, certainly uh, a liquidity opportunity for my founder. So, you know, I, I rattled through the list, but, you know, running a public company is really, really hard. Yeah. Um, and so you, you must really have it in your mind that this, this is harder yeah. than just running a, a private company. Um, and the expectations are harder because it's quarter in, quarter out. So I, that is the first, because it requires a sense of resilience, uh, your, your personal life, to be in order to be able to manage that because lots of things hit a public company and it is grueling quarter in yeah. quarter out. Yeah. Um, it, this, this isn't, this isn't the world where you hit 97 or 98% of plan <laughs> and you're high fiving. No, yeah. no, it's gotta be 105% of plan yeah. and yeah. it's not forgiving. Right. So it's, it's, it's that. And, 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 and really a sense of preparedness of your numbers Mm-hmm. Right, ensure that your growth is solid, and you have line of sight for several years of significant growth, mm-hmm. and as well as um, a real line of sight towards EBITDA. Um, and if that and the team too, and if that's not the case, then then often my advice is um, that there are many other paths to yeah. success other than being public. So, and and by the way, this this was an advice from me. So I know I'm sharing it here on this podcast. This is advice. Mm-hmm. 
that I didn't sit and process and listen as much as I could. <laughs> but, but but everyone's entitled to experiment on that journey just like I did, but it, it, it was hard. Excellent advice. And I think to your point, just something that um, requires careful consideration. Yes. So, so thank you for sharing that. In your career, you know, how would you, in terms of challenges that you faced as a leader, uh, what would you say is the most difficult challenge you've encountered and, and what has it really taught you? Uh, I would say, uh, you know, um, it's this evolution uh, that is necessary for scale and that each stage of the growth of the company requires different sets of muscles. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the flexibility that you you really need to have and the openness. Um, and so that begins with a journey of real self-awareness and reflection mm-hmm. um, and a certain humility to say, wow, I still have a lot to learn. What happened in this instance how do I, I I evolve from here? And so investing in that, meditating, journaling, getting a coach. Yeah. Um, it's 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 all of it. And I remember lead was one of the classes I took in business school that was sort of the running joke that says, Oh yeah, yeah, you know, all these people <laughs> stuff. That's easy, that's the easy class. And yeah. then years later, when you when you run into uh, so many business school grads, they said, Oh my god, that was like one. I mean, if I had paid attention to that course, that's <laughs> I spent a majority of my time on that stuff. Right. So the yeah. self-awareness journey. Is, is, is pretty critical because yeah. it allows you to be flexible and allows you to evolve. It allows you to, to, to be open. And so mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what's coming at you. If yeah. it's a failed, a failed M&A, you know, we bought a company and I had to announce within a year to shut it down and lost sure. the company a lot of money. Sure. If it's a PR crisis or if it's your top executive that you never expected would leave, sure. announces that they're going to leave. Right. You know, like it, all that can happen. And so you, you, you need to have that sense of, of, of flexing the right muscles when you need it to evolve. Sure. Sure. No, that's, um, that's great advice. You know, I think one of the interesting kind of observations that I've had is that, you know, as a startup founder or, you know, an entrepreneur, you often have kind of multiple career opportunities or trajectories. And so as I look at our portfolio and, you know, founders who may have exited or have decided to move on, you know, would love to just hear advice that you have for founders who are thinking about, you know, next steps in their career, you know, whether it's, you know, moving on from their first company or second company, any thoughts around that? I was just actually having breakfast with a founder who's looking for an exec chair and said, you know, ask me the question, is it required? Do you think that they really should be a founder? Um, to have coached. And, and I said, absolutely. <laughs> and, 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 and the reason for that is founding a company is very um, emotional because it's like giving birth to a child. And sometimes it's like asking, you know, someone to uh, be intimately a, your coach and in your life. And of course, there are many successful coaches who have never been founders, right, for a different reason and for a variety of the contexts in a situation. But the founder journey is a special one because that giving birth to a child means you have to figure out when they're ready to take on the world like your child, that they're going to do it without you. And how do you depersonalize it, but yet believe that the foundations that you put in and the vision that you had 
for this child will carry on and live on. And so it's, it's not an easy one, but thankfully my mother's journey and I at the time had already been truly an empty nester. Both my boys had, had grown up and I, I likened it on to that, right? It was like, yeah. I, you know, I, it, I remember when I had made the decision to step down, somebody had said, was it difficult? And I said, you know, it's interesting. It wasn't because I knew in my heart that to actually grow and let care touch more lives, just like my children, you know, how do you do that? You, yeah. you do have to let go. Right. And, and, and you have to not attach your identity yeah. to this thing that you created because it will be bigger. You will be prouder of it. Um, you know, and that you have to trust and faith that the values that you put in place are, are the foundations are there. And so anyway, so that became my focal point. Um, and sure. so I do everything. I'm completely economically out of care.com and I do what I can to really advance it, help in any way that I can, um, and continue to support it. Um, because I, I, I just think it's going to do great in the world and touch many more and millions and billions of lives. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I think, um, you know, there's, to your, to your earlier point, you know, it's, it's not just a business, it's actually playing such a, such a needed role in, in so many, you know, Americans lives, which is, which is incredible. So I think I'm uh, moving on to kind of the last couple of years. I know that you've joined the wing as executive chairwoman, and I know that you have played a really pivotal role in your board work across other companies as well. When you think about that part of your career, why is it important for you to kind of lend your expertise and innovations, innovation to boards in the way that you do? Um, I think there's just a sense of paying it forward and being a sounding board. A very dear friend of mine, Andrew Waite, he wasn't my exec chair, but he was certainly an advisor to me at the company. I remember during, um, you know, we were going through a PR crisis at CARE and we were, it was very public, front page and all that. And I remember during those moments, I would call him sometimes 11 p.m. at night. And I remember him saying to me, um, when I asked him the question, like, wow, you are always so available to me. And he had been a CEO as well. And he decided that he was going to go do this next after after selling his companies. And he said, when you get a call from a CEO at 11 p.m., there's a reason they're calling. They're mm -hmm. feeling alone. They're feeling alone and they don't know who to call. And they're calling you because you've been in those shoes. And so, it, and that, and that to me, and that image of those moments where I may be alone in, at home or in a hotel room, stewing about a decision and needing advice, who do I call? Where do I go? Um, and I started to realize that, gosh, helping people create bigger impact in the world and why CEOs are so critical is because they can touch a lot of lives. And so I, I, I have two boxes I check. You know, it's got to be a mission-driven company and it's got to be a founder that is authentic um, and just kind. Those are my two mm -hmm. checkpoints. And if they have those two checkpoints, I get really excited to work with them and I'm, I'm there for them 24-7. That's fantastic. Well, I'm excited to see what, what's to come. Mm -hmm. And I think also of late, you've joined NEA as an investor, which is super exciting. What's that experience been like, you know, as an operator, you know, you obviously have one perspective and, you know, coming at it from the other side, I'm sure must be really interesting. Have you enjoyed that experience? And, and what are, what are some of the areas, you know, as an investor that gotten your attention? It's certainly a lot of fun. Um, I just feel so honored uh, to work with an NE, the NEA team and they're just, the culture is phenomenal. I knew, uh, you know, when I was raising money, 
in each of the rounds, I, I tended to pay attention to um, not only the partner, but how did the partnership conduct themselves when I did the pitch? Mm-hmm. You know, did they talk over each other? Did they have a sense of camaraderie? Yeah. Um, and respect for each other. And, and it was, an, you know, just as much as building a culture is important to me, uh, you know, working with the right set of investors is really important. Um, and of course, one of the reasons I'm an Alpine Female Founders Fund is also just because of the importance of culture and its leadership. And so um, I, you know, uh, in that journey, the authenticity of supporting founders is very evident at NEA. And so that's the reason I joined I, I love uh, the, not just the screening, but the, the honesty of founders who, who may come that we give feedback to say, we're not ready now, but let's talk some more, sure. right? And, and come back to us and the, and the authenticity to really support and provide talent. And I've seen any do this, that even, even without um, have made the investment you know, and they develop a real strong relationship and bond with the founder, there's just an incredible willingness to help and yeah. that authenticity to do that. And it's just core to the mission. So, and that's who I am. Like I, I'm very focused on helping founders scale because it's, it's now sort of my mantra around, well, what's the biggest impact I can have and the bar is high to do whatever is next after care.com. And so sure. if that means I can touch more leaders and other lives so that they in turn can help more people, uh, that's what I'm focused on. Yeah, no, I love that. And, and any specific kind of investment areas that you've you know, learned more about or excited about? Absolutely. Um, I like, I mean, uh, it makes sense that marketplaces mm-hmm. um, and modern marketplaces a focus on families, women, healthcare, and NEA is particularly um, the right fit for me and my background, just because of the overlap between tech media and healthcare for what the um, the venture firm stands for, which is those are the areas of of passion and interest to me, and obviously that that fits aftercare.com. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, great. Well, I think we're going to move into our lightning round. So okay. I will ask you a couple questions and feel free to answer with whatever comes to mind first. So let's kick it off with what characteristic do you think is the most important for a successful founder to have? I think these are for founders as well as, as anyone trying to grow as a leader. I call it authentic boldness. It's and, and they, and they may feel like they're opposing forces, but it's how, how can you be authentic? You have to be vulnerable. How can you be vulnerable? And yet I'm using the word boldness to be confident and strong, and they seem like they're opposing. But I actually think the journey of vulnerability and leadership makes you more bold, makes you less focused around what other people think, because you, you accept me for who I am, and so I can be bolder. Um, anyway, so authentic boldness. What is your productivity secret? Always be triaging. <laughs> <laughs> I am constantly triaging and prioritizing in my head around focus area, percentage of time, and little techniques around efficiency, whether that's packing or, uh, you know, Sally Krawcheck describes, you know, a percentage of time that that women spend putting makeup on relative to men. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm constantly like, okay, how, how, how do we um, really maximize our time? Now, let me put a point on that. Um, maximize time so that then I can truly live in the moment. 
right? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Which is important. So it can't be all about efficiency. What is the one thing you find to be true that most people would disagree with? There's often this mantra, and I certainly throw it around, that life is short. But I've been using the life is long. Mm. Um, and, And the reason for that, and that's not often a quote people use, is that we're living longer, um, yeah. but more importantly is the emphasis on relationships, that to not assume that life is transactional and that the relationships are truly long and that people will be in your lives for a long time. What is your guilty pleasure, um, i.e. how do you relax? So it took me years to have the patience <laughs> to meditate. Um, I love uh, my Calm app. And, um, and the other one is definitely, you know, uh, a really hot and thrilling beach book. <laughs> um, wonderful. Anything you want to plug or announce here before we wrap up? Oh, absolutely. Please, if you're a female founder and you want community in a sense of a sanctuary and belonging, you got to come to the wing. We're reopening. Super, super excited. Uh, Flatiron, uh, Soho, Bryan Park. We just, I was just came back last night from West Hollywood. We reopened uh, on Monday. So I knew thank you for, for that opportunity. And certainly let's spread the, the love and the news to get people uh, over to the wing. Fantastic. Fantastic. And where can our listeners find you um, online? Certainly on LinkedIn. I've got Medium. Um, you know, I'm starting to post a lot more now that I'm a year through my sabbatical after care. So yeah. I'm happy to, you know, listen to feedback, input, ideas. Um, certainly reach out. Fantastic. Um, well, this was so okay. wonderful, Sheila. Thank you. Okay. Um, thank you. Really, really appreciate it. And thank you for everything that you do for female founders. So proud to be part of this family. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to The 2% for today's episode featuring Sheila Marcello. Sheila's impact working to create a more gender equal workforce is incredibly inspirational. And I hope you learned as much from this episode as I did. Stay in touch with us on Instagram at Female Founders Fund and on Twitter at FQVC. And for those of you building the next billion dollar businesses, we'd love to hear from you. Send all pitch decks to pitches at femalefoundersfund.com and we'll be in touch. And finally, if you're interested in working at one of our 45 plus female founded startups, explore our job opportunities at jobs.femalefoundersfund.com. Make sure to subscribe to The 2% on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you are listening. And stay tuned for our next episode with powerful women founding and funding the future. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes or simply tell a friend about the show. That would help us out too. Until next time, I'm Anu Dougal, and this has been The 2%.